Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Welcome to the Lung Cancer Voices uh, uh, podcast. This is the third in a series where I'm talking with my colleague, Dr. Garth Nicholas, about some of the most important lung cancer trials in history and what makes them so important and maybe some of the reasons why they're either very good trials or we should pause and, and, and think for a second time about them. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the first couple of episodes uh, where Dr. Nicholas explained uh, how this project came about and uh, we talked about uh, screening studies and we've talked about early stage or adjuvant trials. Um, and just as a reminder, this was from a Lung Cancer Awareness Month uh, endeavor where Dr. Nicholas tweeted every day um, a series of tweets about these important studies and what we can learn from them. So, um, Garth, welcome back for uh, episode three. Thank you. And um, thank you again for, for, for doing this. We'll jump right in to your first tweet. Uh, sure. Or your fir- after your introduction to what you're going to do, November the first, first day of Lung Cancer Awareness Month, you you picked a study from a few decades ago. Yes. So, w- why did you pick that? What, what's what was the study? Why is it important? So this is a yeah. So this is a study that was published in 1988, conducted in the few years before that. It's a Canadian study. So uh, again, I liked to uh, like to uh, cheerlead for Canadian studies when I was able to do so. It's a study, you know, it, it's, it's a study that, that I think is very interesting. It's, it's from a time that most people now practicing don't remember, right? It's, it's long ago. At the time, there was no systemic therapy that was considered a standard of care for metastatic lung cancer. So there was no widely accepted chemotherapy or any other treatment that, uh, that was thought to help people with metastatic lung cancer. So would that mean that, so at that time, diagnosis of lung cancer w- was essentially a death sentence without yes, without people might, to yeah. people might get uh, palliative radiotherapy for symptomatic okay. areas but there was not a there was not a, a widely accepted standard of of, of care okay. or medical treatment yeah and so this trial randomized people to uh, one of three options randomized people to one of two different chemotherapy regimens or to a third arm that is what we call best supportive care. That is to say, no specific anti-cancer treatment. And I think one of the things that is historically interesting about this trial is that because around this time in the late 80s, we started to see uh, some trials demonstrating that chemotherapy could prolong uh, the lives of people with metastatic lung cancer, this is really one of the last studies where it was still ethical or appropriate to randomize people to an arm that had no no specific treatment, okay? It was ethical and appropriate at the time because that was actually the standard of care. That's what most people received. It would not be the standard of care today. So so this kind of study could never be uh, could never be conducted uh, probably again. It's interesting to look at the the outcomes of the study in the sense of 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 uh, how did people do? And bear in mind, these were these were healthy, fit people who were randomized on unclinical trials. They, they they tend to be people with among the better prognosis of of all people with metastatic lung cancer. 
And I think the main take home from, from, from this study is that with these two sort of older chemotherapy regimens, average survivals of people with metastatic lung cancers were in the neighborhood of six or seven months with chemotherapy. The average survival of people who got best supportive care was 17 weeks, so basically four months. And I thought this was a good place to start because as we talk about different trials of metastatic lung cancer through the course of the month and we see the the advance, this is the baseline we're starting with. This is the, 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 if you do nothing for even fit well people with metastatic lung cancer, probably the average amount of time those people have left to them is, is just a handful of months. So I, I think that is a good baseline with which to evaluate the, the subsequent uh, kind of advances that we talk about. And then you spent the rest of the month really highlighting some, some, some amazing advances, which we'll, we'll talk about. Um, for those who want to kind of go back to the, the Twitter feeds, I, we're not going to talk about November the 3rd or November the 11th uh, in the podcast for the purposes of time. But, but November the 3rd, uh, Joan Schiller uh, study in the New England Journal of Medicine, and then on November 11th, one with a, with a, a more modern uh, chemotherapy regimen called cisplatin pemetrexed. But um, Dr. Nicholas kind of explains the importance of sort of the, the and maybe the evolution of of chemotherapy. Um, for lung cancer, but so so I encourage people to look at those themselves. And what we're going to do is look at uh, sort of the next wave. And in the previous podcast, Dr. Nicholas described kind of three waves of development of drug treatments. There's there's the chemotherapy from, as you've heard, those those 1980s through to the sort of early 2000s, and then the next wave was what we call targeted therapies, generally tablet treatments. Uh, which we'll talk about next, and then and then we'll come on in a minute to talk about immunotherapy, which is that kind of third wave. So, Garth, November seventh. So you you presented uh, another New England Journal article from a study called IPASS, which is you know we would consider you know mandatory reading for I, any oncology trainee. Probably. I would think so. If when I you know in sort of thinking about these podcasts and what we would talk about, I, I wasn't quite sure how we were going to divide up lung cancer or what the kind of threads or themes were going to be. But there was no there was no combination of threads, themes, or or topics that did not include the IPASS study. Right. It's uh, it's pivotal. Yeah. It's pivotal. So yeah, really pivotal study. Tony Mock, uh, who's also been on the Lung Cancer Canada best of lung cancer, uh, sorry, what's new in lung cancer webinar, talking about EGFR lung cancers. And he was the, the main researcher or the lead researcher on the IPASS study. Could you just sure. take us through the study? Yeah. So IPASS is a, is a study that has been pivotal in the development of treatment for EGFR mutated lung cancer. We discussed this briefly in the previous podcast uh, when talking about the ADGIRA study of adjuvant treatment. So this was, so, and EGFR was, I would say, the first of the driver mutations to have uh, therapies directed at it uh, specifically. It has since been followed by ALK and ROS1 and MET and, uh, and, uh, and a whole bunch of others, which we will we'll talk, I think, a little bit about later today. At the time, the standard treatment was chemotherapy, as we've talked about uh, previously, and this trial randomized, but, but sorry, but we had these, these new drugs, these TKIs, and the one that we're looking at here is, is Jafitinib, also called Iressa. We knew that these, uh, these uh, TKIs occasionally resulted in, in amazing responses uh, in people with lung cancer. And they are well-tolerated oral medications rather than being intravenous chemotherapies. The, a couple of important things came out of IPASS. The first important thing, I think, that came out of IPASS was it really 
clearly identified who are the people who benefit from these EGFR TKIs, and it was people who have a mutation in the EGFR gene. In the early days of the EGFR story, we studied, you know, the amount of EGFR on the surface of cancer cells. We studied gene copy numbers. We we, we knew EGFR had something to do with it, but we didn't exactly know which of those tests would best predict the people who would respond to the drug. And this study really clearly identified that people with EGFR mutation benefit from treatment with gefitinib. People without an EGFR mutation do not. So this was really the the start of the targeted oncology kind of revolution, not just in lung cancer, but I, I think, you know, in, in, in a lot of cancers, this, this was a kind of an early precursor of later work. So this study randomized patients to either get the gefitinib drug you, you mentioned or chemotherapy. Correct. And and the teaching sort of pearl that you had in the in the Twitter thread was this this idea of crossover that that yeah. if you uh if you, well maybe you could ex- ex- describe crossover sure. it so- sounds pretty so, self-explanatory. Yeah, so crossover yeah. simply states that if if people are on a study are randomized to one of two treatments when that treatment stops working, they are allowed to cross over and receive the other treatment. So, um, pe- yeah, go ahead. So, well, so why is that? So that sounds like a good thing. If I'm a patient going into the study and maybe I'm, I was hoping to get the IRESA because it's a pill and, 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 and darn it, I, I, I didn't. That sort of computer flip of a coin gave me the chemo, but I'm reassured because I know I can ultimately get the drug if I need it. So that's Correct. good. Yes. Or at least it sounds good, but there's a problem with that. I don't know that it's a problem, but it's something you have to be aware of. And and the what that is, is that ultimately just about everybody on the study received gefitinib, right? And th- that has created uh, perhaps a difficulty or at least something to be aware of in the interpretation of the study, which is that, you know, people who had an EGFR mutation and started with the gefitinib, the study shows that they had longer progression-free survival, that is to say their cancer remained under control for longer if they started with gefitinib than if they started with chemo. But ultimately, it did not show that people who were initially randomized to gefitinib lived any longer. And presumably what that is is not because gefitinib does not improve survival, we all believe that it does, but rather that because people who did not receive it in the first line received it in the second line, that the difference in survival was kind of washed out between the two arms. They, They caught up. So I think the interpretation there is that if you have an EGFR mutation, you should really be treated with an EGFR TKI. But if you receive some chemotherapy first, for whatever reason, you're not necessarily disadvantaged in the sense of of your likely overall survival. The other thing that came out of this study that that is real important, and I think that you can't get from reading the study but and, and was not anticipated from the study was I, I really think this study is the birth of patient advocacy groups. You know, it's okay. uh, the, there was, you know, if you think back to 15 years ago uh, when all we had were, were kind of standard chemotherapies, th- there was very little patient advocacy in lung cancer compared to probably other mm-hmm. cancers. It is, it is likely a prerequisite for advocacy that you have a, a population of relatively well, long-lived patients who, who, have time to, to to engage in these kind of activities, you know, and uh, I think the specific uh, diagnoses of certain driver mutations have sort of given a patient advocacy group something to crystallize around. So there are EGFR advocacy group, ALK advocacy groups. I mean, we yeah. we we know them. And if you're and if you're on Twitter in lung cancer, you've you've seen these groups. 
they've been tremendously influential and valuable in the lung cancer discourse over the last uh, you know decade. And and I think this study was the start of uh, of, of those groups uh, being possible. Okay. Yeah. Great point. Great point. So all right. Well, you mentioned ALK there. So let's sure. let's jump forward to uh, November the twenty third when you tweeted about uh, ALK. You had previously t- talked about an ALK study on November the fifth, but we're going to yep. go for November twenty third. And my question to you to start with is. What has Rene Descartes got to do <laughs> with ALK lung cancer? Because you, you, yeah. So you I, I did throw a reference to Rene Descartes in, into uh, into this uh, discussion. So Rene Descartes was a, a philosopher. Many people think of him as the first uh, modern philosopher. Uh, he worked in a lot of different uh, genres, but one of his uh, one of his uh, important works, Meditations on First Philosophy discusses some of the limitations of our perception and how much we can really know about the world from our uh, from our sensory data and he found it possible to doubt uh, to doubt almost everything that uh, book contains the famous uh, phrase i think therefore i am he ultimately found that uh, the fact that he was having thoughts was the only thing that he could not doubt that he must exist because something was generating these thoughts he attached particular importance, though, to perceptions that he described as being clear and distinct. He thought that there were some perceptions that were just so, well, clear and distinct to our, to our minds that, that you could not doubt the reality of them. And, and I think that came up in discussion of this study, because really, when I sat down to talk about a methodologic point from this study, there was not much to say. The study design is so clear and distinct. This was a this was a study of two different uh, TKIs. Uh, so we, for, should, we should say what the study is because we yeah, haven't yeah. mentioned that. We just <laughs> we just talked about the philosopher. Let's just talk about Rene Descartes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the Alex study. Yes. So this is this pivotal yeah. study. Crizotinib was the standard of care treatment yep. for alk lung cancers. That was a tablet, another oral therapy, and this was looking at electinib, a Correct. newer, like, is it a new and improved yeah. TKI? And so what, why is this such a clear and distinct study? Well, the the design is just so simple. The, the patients were randomized to one of those, uh, one of one of the two studies. The primary outcome was how long uh, people went without their cancer progressing, because we recognize that overall survival uh, might not be positive uh, from IPASS because of the, the crossover situation. And I think it it illustrates that, and and then there was just simply a p value comparing the two arms, and it's it's just so clear that the electinib was an improvement over crizotinib. I think it illustrates, you know, sometimes people get intimidated by the uh, statistical analysis that are presented in trials. Sometimes it seems very complex. And I think what I've found over the years is that, like, it doesn't have to be. If, if the drug is a real winner, if, if the treatment is a real advance over what has come before, you do not require a complex statistical analysis to, to show that. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's obvious. And, uh, and so I'm, I, I always have my little, little uh, internal uh, red flags go up when I start reading a statistical analysis that is very complicated uh, because I start to worry perhaps somebody's trying to pull the wool over my eyes. Yeah. Right. And in fact, you mentioned that in some of the, some of the other uh, tweet threads from some of the other studies where and we talk about exploratory analysis. And if you've got yeah. to go exploring a lot to find something, then, you know, what are you not telling us that you explored for and didn't find it? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so okay, so Alex, which showed really electinib is now by far and away better than crizotinib. Yes. It was pretty clear, and yep. that's what we do now. Okay, so for the final portion of this podcast, and then we've got one final episode um, as well, 
Um, but we're going to move to, we're staying in the, the advanced or metastatic lung cancer, and we're going to jump, jump into this third wave of treatments that uh, we've been talking about, which is immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so immunotherapy really doesn't come up at all uh, in the first half of November, does it? And then, and then uh, in the second half of November, yes. uh, which maybe reflects those waves, gosh, immunotherapy comes up a number of times. And, and you, you started, uh, uh, well, actually, November 13th, actually, I've got slightly wrong there. Keynote, uh, keynote 189 and then Keynote 024, the, these keynote studies, which yeah. um, uh, Merck, I guess, is the company that was developing this drug, Pembrolizumab, yes. and they... Uh, and they called all their studies keynote with a number. So wh- wh- why did you pick these two studies as being really crucial? So so these are two studies of their immunotherapy drug, pembrolizumab, in the, uh, in the first-line setting, metastatic lung cancer. So that is to say people whose metastatic lung cancer had not previously been treated. So they are, uh, they are two studies that are sort of in similar populations. Keynote 024 looked at people who we think might be particularly, whose tumors, pardon me, might be particularly amenable to treatment with immunotherapy because of high expression of a protein called PDL1 on the surface of their cancer cells. So in that study, everybody had high expression of PDL1, which is about a third of lung cancers uh, seem to have that. In the other study, Keynote 189, enrolled everyone regardless of their PDL1 status. In both arms, the standard of care was the chemotherapy in the standard of care arm. And then in uh, in Keynote 24, they just received pembrolizumab in the experimental arm. In Keynote 189, they received chemo plus pembrolizumab. And both of those studies were positive. Yeah. The addition of pembrolizumab to chemotherapy or in those PDL one high patients, the, the, the immunotherapy alone improved survival for patients compared to having chemotherapy alone. Yes. And that's what we do now every day in the clinic. That's our new standard of care. So the, the methodological point that you, you you pulled out that I was just going to grill you on a little bit is, is, is you talked about on November 16th, this is the Keynote 24 study, you talked about the right-hand side of the curve. Mm. And... So for people listening, like, what the heck's that then? Yeah. So th- there, were a few, uh, th- there were a few posts where the methodologic point had something to do with these things that we call Kaplan-Meier curves. And it's, uh, we're, we're maybe a little bit hampered here by the entirely audio nature of this, uh, of this podcast. <laughs> right. yeah. uh, if, if, you, uh, if you have access to Twitter, yeah, go and, go and find some of my tweets and, 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 and look at ones where I've posted these Kaplan-Meier curves. Kaplan-Meier curves are standard ways of, uh, of demonstrating how many people are at any given time after starting a study treatment are either still alive or, or are still on treatment or have not had their cancer yet recur. It's, it's a way of demonstrating uh, something that changes over time in a population. And usually there is, there is kind of one line on the curve for each arm of the trial. As you move from left to right on a Kaplan-Meier curve, time is going by. So you are, you, are, you are at the left of the curve, you are at time zero, where all the patients are still well. And then as you move towards the, to the right side of the curve, more and more time has passed, and, and some people have had events, whatever the event is of the study, they, they have died or their cancer has recurred or what have you. There's always a lot of interest in the rightmost side of the curve, because when you look there, you know, 
people who are contributing to the right side of the curve are people who have, say, lived a long time after their treatment, right? So we're always very interested to look and say, what proportion of people are, are still alive, you know, one year, two years, three years, four years out after the start of treatment. And undoubtedly, that's interesting and 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 uh, and people are excited by it but i i think in the in the in the tweet threads i also just expressed a little bit of caution about overinterpreting the rightmost side of the curve because it's also the side of the curve with the fewest patients involved and you know different outcomes in just a small number of people could drastically alter the shape of the rightmost side right. of the curve okay, okay. but uh, so the right hand side we sometimes talk about the tail of the sure. curve yeah and uh so with immunotherapy, though, these two studies, there's, the interest is in this tail, isn't it? Yeah, yes. So, so one of the sort of compelling stories uh, uh, for immunotherapy in, in, in many cancers, uh, you know, melanoma and, and lung cancer as well, is this idea that there are some people who really respond very well indeed and, and their cancers may remain under control for many months or even years longer than they would have uh, in the in the absence of immunotherapy. And so for instance if you look at the uh, if you look at the Keynote 189 study that uh, that we mentioned where people got uh, chemotherapy plus immunotherapy compared to chemotherapy alone, you know, the number of people who were alive 2 years after the start of treatment is it, it, close to 50%. It's just a little over 45%, you know. And again, if you think back to the 1988 study that that we started today's podcast with, where the median survival of people was 14 weeks, or pardon me, 17 weeks, you know, this is it's it's hard to think of that as anything other than extraordinary events. Yeah, yeah, terrific. So, so hopefully, um, I think we've all learned in this in this uh, third episode, you know, this this uh, really remarkable evolution, just as you said there, from 1988, from you know, not many people getting treatment, a lot of uh, I think still a lot of nihilism within the medical community. So medical oncologists who might want to offer chemotherapy may not actually ever be referred those patients because yep. the rest of the medical community didn't see the benefit. But to now, you know, there's immunotherapies and targeted therapies. So we'll leave it at there for this one. And we're going to come back for one final episode, which uh, will be a bit more uh, potpourri, a little hodgepodge of uh, other, other studies that you, you put in. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at LungCancerCanada.ca.